Thank you, Dr. Goswami. And I want to express my appreciation of uh, Professor Amya Singh's uh, presentation just now. And I want to acknowledge and appreciate that uh, Professor Singh has been a visiting fellow of the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. So it's very nice to see you here. And I feel honored to uh, be speaking in your presence. And I hope in particular I may get some response from you, Professor Sain. Um, I want to also thank all of the organizers, especially the um, uh, the Department of History of St. Xavier's College and uh, all of the other institutes that are collaborating for this. I think it's interesting that in this period of uh, the COVID pandemic, something good is coming out of it in the sense that we can have such conferences where so many of us can come together from all over the world. Um, the practice of comparison in the study of re religion is a somewhat contentious matter, or perhaps a very contentious matter. My basic starting point is to say that all knowledge, indeed all thinking, involves some form or another of comparison. The professor of religion, the late uh, Professor Houston Smith said, logically, everything is both like and unlike everything else. So comparing as such cannot be an issue. Certain kinds of comparison are the issue, particularly in the study of religion. But more broadly, perhaps we need to ask, why study religion? For me, the study of religion is a practice of moving carefully and with intentionality along the borderline between the finite and the infinite. This is an extremely rich borderline that I would argue we as the human community ignore at our own peril. In the context of cultural studies, the study of religion may be said to be where the human quest for meaning extends to its farthest reaches and where that quest can serve to bring us humans with our endlessly varied perspectives closer and more deeply together. Significantly, the Sanskrit word for meaning is artha, which also means value and purpose. To study religion in the academy is important and integral to cultural studies, and, I believe, such study must always be resistant to reductive approaches, for while reductive approaches may claim to explain religion, they tend instead to explain it away, thereby denying people their meanings and hence resulting in forms of colonization. 
Since our general topic of this program is research methods in social sciences with focus on cultural studies, I want to express a word of caution about method and methodology in the study of religion. As, again, Houston Smith so aptly put it, quote, any method we fix on will be hedged by blinders that create tunnel vision. He goes on to say, we always know more than we know how we know it, from which it follows that to channel our knowledge through methods we are explicitly aware of restricts our field of vision, unquote. And this, Smith goes on to say, quote, is not fair to our subject or to our students, or even by the university's professed commitment to object- objectivity, is to give our students the impression that our enlightenment-vectored courses show them what religion, or I would add culture or society, objectively is, unquote. This is because our methods are invariably incomplete. There is, fortunately, a contemporary scholarly interest in the unknowably unknowably more of human experience, and this owes much, according to Mary Dunn, another scholar of religion, uh, to the 19th century American philosopher and psychologist, William James, who said, quote, reality exceeds our logic, overflows and surrounds it, unquote. He affirmed further, the ultimate opacity of things, a dimension of being which escapes our theoretical control, unquote. And he argued that we know more than we can perceive by means of either our sensate or logical faculties. As one way of possibly overcoming, to some extent, the tendency toward tunnel vision, I want to set forth the method of comparison, or I should better say, a method of comparison. To get a sense of the value of comparison, I suggest an analogy whereby analogies are also forms of comparison, namely our normal condition of physical viewing with two eyes. Because of the parallax from having two points of perspective which we blend in our brain, we experience depth of field, which enables us to understand our own position in relation to what we view. A common objection to comparison is summarized in the English expression, you can't compare apples and oranges. But of course, we can compare apples and oranges if we understand the purpose and the process. In this simple example, the purpose can be understood something, uh, can be to understand something more about apples or about oranges 
A third possible purpose is to illuminate our enterprise in making the comparison, to ask the question why we are making the comparison. Related to this is then to understand something more about ourselves, whether in relation to apples, oranges, fruit in general, or the enterprise of comparison. The point here is that whatever the purpose of comparison may be, the process of comparing, even if it is just apples and oranges, must be with respect to a third object. This third object is most generally an abstraction, such as, in this case, weight, color, market value, chemical content, or what have you. And understanding this principle of triangulation enables a fourth purpose of comparison, namely to illuminate the abstraction with the particulars of the comparison. In this example, to learn something specific about the idea of weight or of color and so on from examining apples and oranges together. This crude example of comparing physical objects is meant to help us see the, that good, me, meaningful comparison is possible by which important knowledge can be gained. In the study of religion, this is particularly important and also particularly challenging. The process of comparison of religious traditions has been carefully and systematically undertaken, amongst other efforts, in the work of Professor Robert Cummings Neville and his colleagues in the Boston University Comparative Religious Ideas Project, conducted in the late 1990s uh, to 2000. There were some 20 scholars involved over a three-year period, producing three volumes. As the title of this project indicates, these scholars specifically restricted themselves to the comparison of religious ideas in order to avoid entering into an overwhelmingly complex task. Some of this Comparative Religious Ideas project, Project's principles I have found helpful in my own work, specifically my doctoral research on the practice of temple worship ritual culture in the Chaitanya Vaishnava tradition, out of which has come my book, Attending Krishna's Image, Chaitanya Vaishnava Murti Seva, as devotional truth. I also made significant changes to their approach. So, for example, whereas Neville and colleagues made comparisons across major religious traditions, such as between Christian and Hindu or between Buddhist and Jewish tradi traditions, my approach was to examine two iterations of essentially the same tradition, the Chaitanya or Gaudiya Vaishnava tradition of Bengal. Also, rather than limiting myself to theological ideas in Gaudiya Vaishnavism, my attention was on theological ideas in relation with physical temple images and the rituals and other related practices associated with the images. 
I essentially compared two specific Chaitanya Vaishnava temples. One Krishna temple in Vrindavan, founded in the 16th century, an embodied community, and one Krishna temple outside London, founded in 1973, a missionizing community. But what was the abstraction about which I compared them? It was what Neville and colleagues called one of three fuzzy categories of comparison, namely religious truth, the other two categories that they used being the human condition and ultimate realities. These are called fuzzy categories because they are intentionally broad and minimally predefined. Religious truth, something largely dismissed by modernity and postmodernity as irrelevant, is, I argue, crucial to be taken seriously if one is to pursue understanding of religious communities. And to approach the idea of religious truth meaningfully is to specif specify it through the understandings and practices of specific communities, especially as placed in dynamic relationship through the act of comparison. Further, it means to keep open the notion of religious truth to the broadest possible extent of the tradition's understandings. For Neville and colleagues, this has meant to recognize three dimensions of religious truth. And here I'll say something briefly about these three dimensions. First is religious truth as epistemological problem, the opposite of which is error, the form of which is further comprehended in terms of reference objects of right knowledge, what in Sanskrit would be called pramaya, meaning, uh, which could be referenced as pramana, and means of engagement, or prama. And each of these three aspects of religious truth as epistemological problem should be seen as having different ranges of articulation, for example, from static to dynamic understandings of reference, ordinary to extraordinary meaning, and propositions to holistic enactments as means of engagement. Second, religious truth as expressed in sacred texts and objects, the opposite of which is, interestingly enough, deceit, deception. It involves various types of texts invol involving various uh, types and degrees of authority within communities and also involves objects including mantra, murti, music, dance, drama, ritual, buildings, and so on. And a third dimension of religious truth is religious truth as cultivation and embodiment, the opposite of which is, interestingly enough, failure. Uh, this dimension involves questions of how a religious practitioner's character is enriched 
elevated, transformed in order to register the higher truth or truths, and questions of embodiment, how the practitioner is affected uh, by engagement with the truth or truths. Here, taking as an example from the Gaudiya Vaishnava tradition, affect may range from rudimentary faith, shraddha, to profound transformative divine love, prema. So how did I go about this comparison of two Krishna temples with respect to what we are calling religious truth? My specific focus was on a particular Sanskrit ritual text, Hari Bhakti Vilasa, compiled by Gopal Bhatta Goswami, the founder of the Radharaman Temple in Vrindavan in the 16th century, and the engagement of present-day practitioners, especially temple priests, with this text, both in this temple in Vrindavan and in the temple outside London, which I studied Bhaktivedanta Manor. Uh, this involved essentially interviewing priests in both places and observing daily and festival practices in both Time and other constraints prevented me from engaging with temple visitors to the extent I would have liked to, but the time I was able to spend with priests allowed me to, uh, to encourage them to be reflective about their activities as temple priests and more uh, broadly about their life situations and identities. The results of my study involved discerning subtle differences in emphasis with respect to a particular polarity of meaning in the process of Krishna worship, namely, on one end of the polarity, the concern for right behavior in the form of careful observance of prescribed rituals, vidhi, and on the other end of the polarity, the fostering of simple, unconstrained attraction to Krishna, Raga, the multifaceted matrix of factors in these two temple cultures yielded an extremely rich perspective on the practices of Krishna Bhakti uh, that I, uh, I believe, served well all of the four purposes uh, of comparison of which I have spoken. On the level of social meaning, as I mentioned previously, the two temple communities under study could be usefully identified as, in the case of the Vrindavan Radharaman temple, an embodied community in which hereditary birthright-based identity as priests is an essential principle for maintaining continuity. And a missionizing community, in the case of the London temple, uh, thus, with respect to my abstraction for comparison, religious truth, one could speak of embodied truth and missionizing truth, with considerable implications for the notion of religious truth. In particular, one could discern a sort of inverse relationship concerning structure and anti-structure, or rigidity and flexibility. Radharaman, with its rigid priestly inheritance-based social structure, seemed to make considerable space 
for flexibility in details of temple worship, for example, timing of worship events, decoration, music, and so on. Whereas the London temple showed somewhat the opposite, with its open social structure seeming to demand considerable rigidity in daily practices. In my particular example of comparison in the study of religion, I selected two Chaitanya Vaishnava temples. In this sense, the focus was very narrow, two temples from the same tradition, yet in other respects one can say that they are worlds apart, geographically, historically, in terms of their social and cultural contexts. My particular interest was to better understand the practice of Murti Seva in the Chaitanya Vaishnava tradition, possibly to serve in the broader interest of facilitating educated articulation by practitioners of their own practice, so within the tradition. At the end of my research, incidentally, uh, in Rindavan, one senior priest of the Radharaman temple told me, he kind of confessed to me, that he had decided as a result of my asking him so many questions over the months that I had stayed there uh, about Archana and Puja, he had decided to start a school for Pujaris in North India because he said, they don't know anything. I found that a common area of concern in these two temple communities could be identified with the fuzzy category religious truth as articulated by the Boston University Comparative Religious Ideas Project. What emerged from the study was a threefold understanding, or what I call construals, of religious truth. Uh, that goes beyond the threefold typology given by the Religious Studies Project. And I'll go through these very briefly uh, before I come to an end. First, religious truth as the, pur um, as the purposive pursuit, the purposive pursuit of felicity conditions, conditions favorable for realizing re religious truth. This construal involves focus on rules as means of establishing the felicity conditions for experiencing the truth of Krishna Bhakti. Injunctive texts, special qualifications to worship, avoidance of error, deceit, and failure. Second, religious truth as releg relegation with emphasis on the dialectic tension between apparently opposite principles in Krishna Bhakti, where the emphasis is on narrative texts describing exemplary devotees and their actions as solutions to oppositions, or murti as enacting and responding to enactments of exemplary devotees, or encountering error, deceit, and failure, thereby giving impetus toward raga, spontaneous devotion. And third, religious truth as lila, divine participation with emphasis on unrestrained and uh, unstrained performance, hence 
emphasis on aimless or purposeless performance of devotional acts, participation in Krishna's pleasure, the place of irony in discovery of religious truth, how Leela comprehends and incorporates error, deceit, and failure. And now just about three more sentences. Coming back to the study of religion in relation to cultural studies, I want to suggest that there is value in recovering the meaning of culture that was prevalent before the late 18th century. As Raymond Williams has pointed out prior to this, culture had meant primarily the, quote, tending of natural growth, unquote. Thus, if we are interested in the human enterprise in the broadest sense, and indeed human in relation with the environment, then cultivation of our potentials as human beings may be an important correlate to which I suggest the study of religion needs to be included, a study which can benefit from careful, skillfully done comparison. Thank you. These are all very big questions, madam. No, no, they're very, they're very nice. Um, can religious truth be considered a priority? I, I, I assume you mean in the study of religion. Uh, I would say for the most part, it is put very much in the background of most academic study of religion. Uh, I was... Uh, very happy to see that this uh, Boston University project put it forward as as a priority, but not as an exclusive priority. As I mentioned, uh, they identified three, if you like, priorities. One, uh, the human condition. The second, ultimate realities. And this uh, third one of religious truth. 
surely one could find other, one can find probably unlimited uh, sorts of uh, principles which one could put into position as the priority about which one wishes to study. Uh, we have scholars who study, for example, religious violence, uh, because uh, this is a big concern, uh, in particularly in relation to politics, um, and on and on, any number of possibilities. My own interest in um, religious truth stems perhaps from my own personal uh, religious upbringing and also an interest in this, let's say, the theological side of the study of religion, um, at the same time know, knowing, understanding something about a distinction between the two. Um, but to, to just say r religious truth uh, should be the priority, I think I wouldn't uh, be uh, in a position to say that. Um, I think Mahatma Gandhi might have said something like that. We just heard from Professor Sain that he said, truth is God. Uh, <laughs> so he may have wanted to phrase it in a different way with respect to uh, this uh, comparative project. But in any case, he, he might have gone in that direction. Uh, your second question was about experience. And absolutely, uh, religious experience can be a, a, an important, uh, can be an essential uh, focus for, for the study of religion. Um, the, the late Professor Ninian Smart identified seven dimensions of religion, um, the doctrinal, the institutional, the ethical, uh, the mythical, uh, and uh, experiential, the material, uh, and so on. So experience is, uh, is for sure an important, if not for many, the most important aspect of religion to be uh, attended to, and therefore uh, application of ethnography, anthropology, of psychology, all of these areas can be uh, applied effectively in the study of uh, religious experience. Um, your third question, I, I'm sorry I missed the first part. It's about cultural hegemony. Uh, yes, sir, I uh, just repeat it. Is eschatology depicting any cultural hegemony? Eschatology? Uh huh. Well, <laughs> I'd have to think about this. Uh, eschatology, of course. Mm, it, yeah, the, I don't think we have to bring a correlation there. Um, eschatology is this concern about. Well, there's there's different ways of looking at it, and of course the term is uh, elaborated particularly in Christian, uh, Christian theology. But I don't know that we would have to say if we talk about eschatology or what happens at the end times 
if such thing exists, uh, that we have to uh, necessarily speak about cultural hegemony. Um, I would be cautious. In any case, uh, your, your final question had to do with hermeneutics. And again, if you can remind me what specifically... Okay. <laughs> yes, why not? <laughs> um, now, hermeneutics is itself a huge topic, uh, and there's... There is no the hermeneutic method. Uh, there's any number of hermeneutic methods. Uh, I would say like this, um, just to, you know, put a handle on it for the moment, the... the the modern or postmodern hermeneutics of suspicion, uh, which dominates or has dominated the academy, the humanities to a large extent, um, I I feel needs to be um, needs to be put uh, not front and center, but needs to be set at least uh, significantly to the side to allow for, um, yeah, for the religious truth to allow the possibility that uh, Krishna Leela is telling, is telling us something, is not simply um, covering over some hidden, uh, you know, so social and psychological uh, influences and, and power moves and so on. Um, yeah, I, I would just leave it at that. Perhaps Professor Sain would like to say something more. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. And uh, I really appreciate, like, uh, as my knowledge is limited, but still how you have uh, tried to guide me. And sometimes I may sound like uh, as... I am asking any question which doesn't make any sense, but for my <laughs> today, I have gathered. No, no, they're very good questions. You don't, you don't have to be so apologetic. Yes, no need. Okay. <laughs> so, every, I, I, what I feel like, you know, that when we are learning something, sometimes, you know, that our understanding is limited, is meager, but with the help of our mentors, we can That's also a big question, and I would say it's a question that I'm working on as we speak. I don't have a simple formulaic answer to, but what I will say is that in earlier scholarship in the academic study of religion, it was uh, quite common to speak about a sharp divide between uh, the so-called insider and the so-called outsider. And uh, this divide was considered to be 
more or less unbridgeable so that uh, this, the scholarship done by the outsider necessarily, for some, is the only real scholarship. The, the scholarship done by the insider, so-called, uh, is, is disqualified, or vice versa. And what's been recognized in recent, um, recent years is that there's no such simple divide, uh, that uh, every one of us is both an insider and an outsider, <laughs> more or less, whether we know it or not, in, in the subject that we are studying, especially with respect to religion. Uh, and so I found my own position as I was doing this particular study, to be actually quite complex, because I found myself to be, as I said, both not simply either one, not simply an insider or an outsider, uh, but in many respects, both at the same time. And what I found was that it was actually a good thing to allow myself to be in a liminal position, to sort of bracket out uh, the whole question of my identity as a way of allowing myself to open up uh, to what it is that I'm studying. Thank you, sir. And uh, due to the paucity of time, we yes. have many interesting, interesting, I'm sorry, many interesting questions and observations also. So. I would like to take one more question by uh, Shantanu Dev. Uh, just a second, please. Yes, uh, his question is, are there any standard parameters for comparison of religious traditions or ideas across spatial and non-chronological temporal zones? <laughs> nice question. Professor Day, thank you. <laughs> Probably Professor Haberman can answer that better than I can. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I would say no, there are no such standards, uh, to my knowledge. And to me, that's one of the good things about the study of religion, that there's no sort of independent um, agency that determines that uh, sort of sets the rules for, for making such comparison. I mean, the study of religion, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's constantly undergoing an identity crisis. Um, is there such a thing as religion is a common question uh, since the beginning of the academic study of religion. Does such a thing exist? Um, and... and so I would say, fortunately, fortunately not, to my knowledge. Maybe, but uh, Professor Haberman can correct me on this. Thank you, sir. Uh, the session was really uh, very uh, much informative, and we all enjoyed, learned, and thank you so much. And thank you. Uh,